Hi friends, this is Pastor Brad. Thanks so much for joining us for this special edition of our podcast. This is a recording of our Bible study coming soon. For this study, we're going to be looking at, at gaining a better understanding of end times prophecy and what the Bible says about the second coming of Jesus. It's a very prevalent topic right now, and we hope that these sessions will help you as you navigate this challenging topic. The sessions will be coming out every two weeks, so keep checking back for the next one. We hope you enjoy your listening. Please reach out if you have any questions or comments. God bless you. Well, we can probably get started. We'll do a little bit of a recap. So if anybody else shows up, they'll just miss our recap of what we've talked about. Um, this week, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to finish off our look at the 13th chapter of Mark. That We're going to try and get through the last chunk of the 13th chapter of Mark. Um, I don't think I, I mentioned this before, but the 13th chapter of Mark and all of the parallel chapters in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, they're called the Olivet Discourse because it's Jesus giving kind of a speech on while well, they're on the Mount of Olives. And so that's why they call it the Olivet Discourse. The same way they call the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, this would be called the Olivet Discourse, except it's not quite as catchy and not quite as famous. Um, but so we've been looking at the Olivet Discourses. Jesus unpacks for us what to look for. And we've looked at the first, we, we, we looked at what Jesus said were, were not the signs to look for, even though many of us have been taught over the years that many of these things may have in, back, in fact been signs, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, brother turning against brother, etc., and then last time we were together, we did a bunch of exhausting work in unpacking what Jesus did say was the sign to look for. And Jesus said the thing that we're to look for was what was known as the abomination of desolation. That Jesus comes to a place where he says, but this is what you should look for. And we looked at Mark, we looked at Matthew, we looked at five different sections of Daniel and Second Thessalonians to try and unpack what Jesus was talking about. That when he said the phrase, the abomination of desolation, what does that mean? And we had to do a lot of digging to find it out. And what we discovered, based on all the research, is that it seemed to be some sort of idol. And it brings a kind of change or corruption to the stoppage of the way that God is worshipped in the temple. And you, and you are supposed to watch for that. And when you see that, Jesus says you're supposed to free, flee Jerusalem, flee Judea. And, and, Jesus, and Matthew tells us that... that this abomination of desolation, Matthew actually says the one that's spoken about in Daniel. And we talked about how actually when Jesus spoke that you needed to look for the abomination of desolation, that the Jewish hearers to that would have thought the abomination of desolation already happened, that they had an event that they believed was the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation from the book of Daniel. They thought this was a past event, not a future event, but Jesus speaks as if it's yet to come. <clears throat> and so what we see is that Daniel seems to say that this, this thing, it's not really an idol in the sense of, of like a statue or, or something like that, but it, that it's a person and that this person brings this abomination to the temple that they were setting up the, the worship of another God or idea or religion um, but what we continue to discover as we unpack is it's not that they were necessarily encouraging the, the worship of another religion or an understanding of another religion, but rather it probably looked more like self-worship, that they were encouraging other people to worship them, 
that they were setting themselves up as God. They, they were presenting themselves as an object of worship. It's not that they were saying, don't worship God, worship this, but more they were saying, don't worship God, worship me. And we see, we saw that, that this, this abomination of desolation, this, this impact on the temple would, would take a place over seven years that the Bible tells us that, the, that there would be this seven year treaty or covenant with Israel. And about halfway through this covenant or treaty, <clears throat> the sacrifices would be changed. And in fact, we would read that he would, that this person would cut off sacrifices that would take place inside the temple, that they would be no longer allowed to worship God in the temple, but instead they would have to worship this, this person. And at this point, halfway through these seven years, when they cut off sacrifices, that's when this person would really institute themselves as this object of worship. So in other words, the worship, in other words, the worship of God is stopped and the worship is now towards this idol. The temple has been repurposed for this bad guy character that's coming. And Jesus tells us, Jesus says that this is a sign that we can and should be watching for. That of all the things that we should be watching for, this is what Jesus says you need to be watching for. And to me, that's a big deal. Because this isn't me uncovering something. This isn't me thinking, you know, I think I've put a few things together. This is Jesus saying and giving us permission to look for these things that Jesus says, this is the sign to look for. So, so when I see something on Facebook that someone posts, it's an article about Russia and China building bridges and the symbolism and how that fuels and how that fulfills biblical prophecy. I can know that's not what Jesus told me to look for. I can file it away. It doesn't mean I ignore it. Doesn't mean it's worthless. Doesn't mean it means, doesn't mean anything but it's not what Jesus said for me to look for. When people look at things like earthquakes, quakes or wars or, or what they think could be one world governments or the temple being built or Israel becoming a country. But before we rush off to say the Bible said, this is what was going to happen. It must mean the end times. We need to remember that Jesus only gave us one sign to look for. And the abomination of desolation was meant to be a sign to look for in the second coming of Jesus. And so we, that's where we're going to, that's where we left off last time was that he would, this, we, Jesus would bring his discussion to his second coming. And so that's where we're going to pick up this week. And there's, there's really three chunks of Mark chapter 13 left. If you're looking in your Bibles, you can kind of see that there's, there's three chunks. There would be potentially, depending on how your Bible is divided up, it'll have a chunk that'll might have a header that'll say the second coming, then another chunk that'll say the fig tree, and then another chunk that'll say no one knows the hour or something like that. And so tonight we're going to try and, and motor our way through all three of these, um, We'll, we'll stop at a couple points just to make some notes or for me to highlight something for you that, that is interesting or something that is contentious or something that is debatable or controversial, but we'll, we'll, we'll work to make our way through, through all of this. I just wanted to turn in my Bible. Yeah. So in my Bible, the three chunks are the coming of the son of man, the parable of the fig tree, and no one knows the day or hour, verse 24 through verse 37. And we're going to try and get through all of that. So if we start with verse 24 through 27, it will say this. 
But in those days, after that tribulation, so after this time, after the events that we just read about, the abomination of desolation, and, and Jesus will refer to it as a tribulation, after that seven-year period where, this is, where, this, where there is this event that changes and compromises the worship of God on this large scale, and all of the fallout from that, after that, in the days that come after that, we will see the events that Jesus will speak about verse 24 continues the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven the powers in the heavens will be shaken now this is a place where there's a bit of disagreement on how people understand this passage understand what what that means and there's really there's really three different ways that people um, will look at this passage and try to understand that two that I don't think are right. And one that I think makes the most sense, but I want to present them all to you just so you can be aware if you're having a discussion with someone that they might view the passage like this. The, the first way to understand these verses is in a very literal, very hyper literal sense. And really the only people who take this stance are skeptics, um, atheists, people who are trying to show how the Bible doesn't really work, that the sun is actually going to be put out. Well, well, if the sun was going to be put out, it would actually have to be put out millions of years because how long it takes light to get here and, and all of these things, or the stars are going to fall down out of the heavens. Don't you know how big a star is? If the star was to fall on earth. We would all be dead. It wouldn't be a sign that something was happening when it happened. It would, it would wipe us out. The, the smallest star is way larger than the earth. And so if these were literal things that were actually going to happen, this doesn't make sense. And so that they will try to use a verse like this to, to mock us and say how stupid this is. But really the only people that look at these verses like that are people who are looking to talk about the absurdity of how all of this sounds. The second way that, that some people interpret these verses that, that I also um, personally believe is a mistake, but there's more room I think here for, for discussion, but, but some people will, will, um, people do this because it can help them find some kind of fulfillment in the things going on around them. But people will look at a verse of these verses and see them as entirely figurative, that Jesus didn't mean anything literal. So you go from everything is literally happening by the words that are spoken to everything simply represents something and nothing is actually anything. Everything is entirely figurative. The sun represents something. The stars being put out, that represents something. That the sun, the sun being darkened, the sun being dark means the, the end of an empire or it means the end of an idea, or it means the end of a country or the end of a people. The, the, the stars being put out means political powers being put out or, or demonic forces or pagan worship, false areas of worship. They're all gonna become falling down. And some people will, will take a look at this and say, everything, everything is just simply figurative. Um, and then there's the third way, and, and this is the way that I think makes the most sense. And what I would say is that it's flexibly literal. That the things that are taking place there, they are taking place, but not in a literal scientific sense, um, meaning this is how things are going to appear, if not what's actually happening. Um, you and I, all of us probably grew up talking about shooting stars. Um, and the concept of a shooting star is flexibly literal. 
um, because it's not actually a star. And so when we say, oh, there's a shooting star, it's not, it's not actually a star. So stars could, could be meteors. The sun being darkened doesn't necessarily mean that the sun will stop emitting light, but it may appear to be darkened. We, we have some experience here with, with um, smoke from wildfires, where you go out in the middle of the day and the sun's not very bright. And perhaps you've seen videos, you know, I saw the videos from the wildfires in California a couple of years ago where it was the middle of the day, but it was as dark as night. Um, and we, I, I was doing some reading, um, actually, a, an article came across as I was preparing for this about how scientists are, are believing that some sort of cataclysmic event kind of like this took place about a thousand years ago. And they've just sort of uncovered what they believe it was because there was this record in all of these different cultures where the sun went black. And what did that mean? And they think that there was a, a, a humongous forest fire that caused cloud cover and it happened about a thousand years ago but there was this this understanding it's very similar to what happened when jesus was crucified on the cross um in luke chapter 23 we we can read this our uh well where's luke 23 did i jump ahead of it well, no matter where, what it says on the screen, in Luke chapter 23, it will say this. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun lights failed. Did the sun actually fail when Jesus died? No, the sun didn't actually go out, but it appeared to the people as if the sun had gone out. It wasn't dark because the sun actually failed. It was flexibly literal. And so I think this is probably the best way for us to understand this, that there's atmospheric events that will be taking place that will affect the sunlight and the way the stars are viewed in the sky. The, the death of Jesus was accompanied by these kind of events. And so it only makes sense that, that the coming of Jesus could be accompanied by the same sort of cosmic events that will show us the power in his second coming. And we can see that in the next verse, verse 26 says, and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. We see the, the power and the glory of the sun coming. And some of the ways that we see that is, is through these accompanying cosmic cataclysmic events. And one thing I want to highlight for you here, because it's actually really interesting and it's really cool to note as we see and understand what it means that Jesus is coming back is when you note what we just read, that you'll see the son of, son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And if you stop and you think about that and you reflect on that versus the first coming of Jesus, that in the first coming of Jesus, we see him come in meekness and quietness as a baby in a manger Scripture will tell us, it will say, there's nothing special that we should desire about him. There was nothing seemingly special about this little poor baby born to poor parents in, in a stable in the middle of nowhere. But in his second coming, he's not coming like that at all. He's coming with the power and glory of being a resurrected savior. And so it, it's interesting to note and interesting to see the the difference between the two, the two comings of Jesus, that in the, his first one, he'll come in meekness. and the second one, he will come with power and majesty, and everyone's going to see it, and everyone's going to know. 
Now, it's important for me to note here without getting too far into the weeds, because I don't want to travel too far down any of these things. But I just want to make you aware of this, um, that some people will have different interpretations on just about every single word in this verse. Um, as you, as you read, uh, then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. There is debate about who they is. Um, there is debate about what the word see means. There is debate about the son of man and you know, that's Jesus, but there are people who believe that there, this verse is actually referring to in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed, that, that God came back, but there was, we didn't really notice him. There's debate about what coming means. There's debate about what clouds means. There's debate about just about every single word in this verse, that if you were to look up this verse and look for how people understand it, you will find differing views on almost every single word that we just read. But I don't want to get bogged down in niche understandings of these verses. Um, we could probably spend all night talking about this verse, but I don't think it would be super productive other than to highlight just how crazy we can be when we've had 2000 years to try and read a verse. Um, but people, and other than to let you know that um, people have lots of ideas, um, but I wanted to let you know that even when you look at a verse or when I look at a verse and I read that verse and I read, the, the, we will see the coming of the son of man on cloud with great power and glory. And I read that and I go, I know what that means. But there are other people who will go, no, you don't. And in fact, what this means is this and what this means is that. Um, but we'll, we'll go to, to verse 27. And then he, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, again, this is another passage where there is all kinds of, what does this mean? That, that there are people who believe that this, this verse has already been fulfilled. Um, that actually the mess, the angels, because the word angels is really the word messenger. And so different places will, will say that, and that the word angels should have been translated messenger and that this already has taken place. That this was the disciples being sent out to go. And, and so when he says that he will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, that it's actually just missionaries going out to share the gospel with people I think that it's a pretty big stretch to get there, but wanted to highlight that for you again. But I also want to let you know that without going too deep into this, and we may touch on this later, we'll, we'll talk about this at least later, or the idea of it. But this verse does represent one of the strongest evidences for the post-tribulation rapture. That if you are a post-trib person, this verse paints a picture of that. Um, this passage seems to indicate that the gathering of all of God's people takes place after the abomination of desolation and events that seem to be the seven-year tribulation. And so then after the second coming of Jesus, or at the same time-ish as it, that's when Jesus would gather all of his people to him. Now, there's other interpretations for this passage. And again, people disagree on what this verse means. And there are other verses that paint a different picture of pre, post, or mid-tribulation stuff. But since we read this verse, I wanted to, to highlight that for you. 
Now, there's a couple more passages that we need to unpack because they are important for us to be able to understand Jesus's words here. Because they're actually passages, some of these, these next verses actually, uh, verses 28 through 31, um, and the, the fig tree. This is actually one of the greatest sources of predictive text. Um, that these next few verses, and we'll read through them, but this is one of the greatest sources where people have found a place where they like to do interpretation from. And I'll walk you through sort of why they do that and why it's probably flawed to try and do it from this, but people will use this um, because this is one of the, yeah, one of the greatest or most used passages to try and build a case for the timing of the second coming. And so let's look at this next section, the, the parable of the fig tree, the lesson of the fig tree, depending on what your, your Bible might say, but starting in verse 28, it will say this. So Jesus has just talked about um, his second coming. He's talked about that. He's going to send out his angels to gather his elect. And then he says this verse 28. Uh, where are we? Um, some, Oh, now here's all the Luke stuff. All right, here we go. Verse 27, verse 28. Here we go. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will soon pass away, but my word will not pass away. Now, before we dive into understanding this, I want to just highlight for you something very, very interesting and unique that just happened there that you may not have noticed, um, but it is actually an incredible divine evidentiary moment for Jesus um, when he says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In all of scripture, when you read through all of the Old Testaments, when a prophet is speaking, a prophet will never identify the words of God as their words. They will say, for the Lord, the Lord has spoken. The Lord says, the, for, as it is written, that they will not refer to, this is what I have to say. But Jesus here makes a claim that the only other place where this comes close is also God. That God will say not, that none of his words will pass away. But Jesus, this is Jesus speaking and saying to his audience, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. This is a moment where, where whether we see it initially or not, this is a moment where Jesus is claiming to be God. That, that this is not the claims of a man. This is not a claims of a good teacher. This is a divine claim by Jesus, hearkening back to language of the Old Testament. But instead of saying, heaven and earth will not pass away, but the words of my father will not pass away, or the words of God will not pass away, he says, my words will not pass away. But this, this passage about the fig tree, this is obviously figurative. Um, Jesus tells us it is. He says, learn the lesson from, or learn this parable, learn this lesson from the fig tree. And because of, but because of its figurative nature, it has led many people to try and speculate and try to figure out the hidden meanings behind this. Because Jesus says that there's this moment where this fig tree is going to bloom. And then he gives us almost like a time frame. 
that he says, from when you notice this fig tree starting to bloom, not one generation is going to pass. And so if we can figure out what the fig tree means, then we know that not one generation is going to pass before Jesus comes back. So all we got to do is figure out the fig tree. Now, one of the most common understandings or one of the most commonly used pictures for people as they're trying to figure this out is that to, to think that the fig tree represents Israel. In fact, if you were to do a Google search and ask, what does the fig tree in Mark 13 represent? Probably the first result you'll find, and by far the most common result you'll find, is uh, that it represents Israel. And you'll find lots of websites talking about how in the Bible, fig trees represent Israel. And we'll talk about actually why that's a convenient assumption, but a problematic assumption in just a moment. But because this is a common understanding that fig tree equals Israel, many people started to believe that the picture of the fig tree must be of Israel. And, and so then people saw the Israel becoming a nation and they thought, it's blooming. That the fig tree is blooming. This is what's taking place. The blooming of the fig tree is Israel becoming a nation. And this led to many people trying to do math off of 1947. Israel's become a country. So the fig tree has bloomed. Let's start doing some math off of 1947. Or 40, 48. You're right, 48. You're, you're a generation. There you go. So, so 19, there we go. That's right. As long as Carol's around, we, we got our countdown clock. Um, but this, this led so many people to do math in regards to 1948. If the fig tree is Israel and it, it, it is becoming a country is blooming and a generation will, will, will not, well, the generation then will see these things before they pass away. And so they try to figure out how long a generation was in scripture and they do the math. Typically in scripture, a generation is referenced to 40 years um, that, you know, that's, that's where we see the Israelites in the desert and God says, you can't enter into the promised land. And so, um, because they didn't trust him. And so they had to wait 40 years as a generation. And, you know, we'll talk about again, why that's a problematic understanding, but, but this is one of the, the, the big reasons why you saw a boom of second coming predictions in the 1980s was because people started doing math off of 1948. And so depending on how you viewed things, that if you said 40 years from now would be 1988, but if you were a pre-trib person, then you say, well, then the, the, res the second coming of Jesus must come in 1981. Or if you're a post-tribulation person, the second coming of Jesus might come in 1988. And we, we saw books that were written, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 88. And the, the, it's based off of this understanding that Israel is a fig tree and the fig tree's blooming and blooming might become a country or might be becoming a country or there's other people who saw, well, it wasn't really blooming when it became a country, but there was a war a few years later where, where Israel took control of Jerusalem. And that was it. That was officially now Israel is blooming. And so we can, we can now really start to count towards that. And that, that's what we're seeing. And then there were people who said, well, you know, a generation, 40 years, maybe not. 
you know, God said after the flood that you wouldn't live, people wouldn't live to be more than 120 years. So maybe a generation is 120 years, but there was lots and lots of predictions and lots and lots of math and lots of lots of stuff that came out of this past passage as people use different markers as the moment, the fig tree that is Israel bloomed and summer had come and then tried to figure out, well, what does one generation from there mean? Now, there's a couple things that I want to clear up from, for us from this passage. The first is the assumption that we make around the word generation. Um, when I use the word generation, when we use the word generation, because we read this word, we bring our understanding of this word to this word. What does generation mean? It means a group of people born in a number of years, whether you're, you know, millennials or, or generation X or, or baby boomers or generation Z. These are words that we would come to understand with generations that, that, you know, I, I'm born in 1981. So I sit like on the dividing year between generation X and millennials, kind of depending on who you ask. It's 1980 or it's 1983 or it's 19. What, so I sit in there, but all of us are part of a generation. And so we, that's typically the word that we use, but we need to understand something about the Greek word here uh, is genea is, is, is how you would say it. And although we translate it out to generation because it is probably the most understandable word that we would use, um, the word doesn't necessarily, it doesn't preclude a time-stamped sort of generation, but it doesn't necessarily specifically mean that. What it really means is a collection of people identified by something. Um, so it could mean a race of people. It could mean an ethnic group. It's really a, crust, a cluster of people organized or identified by some kind of idea. So whether that idea is when they were born, where they were from, um, they have some kind of shared identity. So that could mean birth years, but it doesn't have to. It could have meant the Jewish people. That Jesus was saying that, that to his listeners, this, this group of people that I'm speaking to, the Jewish people will not disappear until all these things have happened. And so when you have events like, you know, the, the Holocaust and they're trying to exterminate the Jewish people, God's promise is I will watch over these people and they will never disappear. Or you could say that Jesus was speaking to his followers. And so when he said this generation, this group of people, he may have been speaking about Christ followers, Christians, that this generation, this group would not disappear. They may be persecuted, but they won't be eradicated. God will preserve them. But by far, 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 the majority of scholars will take it to mean a time-based or a, peer, a time period based people, a generation. So who is the generation that, pe that Jesus is speaking to? Was it the people that Jesus was speaking to? And again, as, as a lot, and, and if we do talk about the six views, we'll talk about uh, post-millennialism or preterism as it's called. And that's where people believe that the vast majority of end times prophecy was fulfilled in, 19, er, in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed and the vast majority of the book of revelation is actually history for us, even though it was uh, the future for them, that it was filled. The first 20 chapters and five verses of revelation are actually fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in 8070. Um, but who was Jesus talking to? 
Now, I think, I think personally, and this is just me speaking, that sometimes we make things like this way more complicated than they need to be. That we look for some kind of symbolic imagery behind these things. When I think that if we just read these things in context, we can get a very uncomplicated meaning. So let's go back and reread verse 29. So also, when you see these things taking place, so all of the things that Jesus talked about. So, so whoever, whenever somebody is alive and they see these things taking place, they see the abomination of desolation. They see all these cosmic events. They see everything that's taken place. You know that he is near. Jesus is referring to himself in the third person, that, that he is Jesus and he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So who is that generation? Well, I would contend that that generation is the generation that sees these things happen. But Jesus said, when you see these things happen, when, when, when people see these things happen, that generation will not, like it won't take longer than a generation for these things to happen. The generation that sees these things happen, the abomination of, genera- the abomination of de- desolation, these cosmic signs, the generation that sees this fig tree bloom, and we'll talk about that in a second. When you see these things, that generation will not pass away. Now, there's one other really big reason for this understanding that Jesus was not referencing a specific generation in a specific time. And we'll get to that in a moment. Um, That'll come in our our next section. But um, there's one other really, really, really big reason that I think when we try to put a time frame on what that means, we get into trouble. But second thing that we need to know about this, this parable of a fig tree is that the fig tree isn't really symbolic of anything. Um, People will say that the fig tree is representative by Israel because it makes for fulfillment to be found in Israel. Um, But if we were to do some Bible study on fig trees in the Bible, we'd discover that fig tree is mentioned seven times in the Old Testament. Uh, The first place is Judges chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. And in Judges chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, they're talking about the sons of Gideon. And he will compare uh, the good sons to a fig tree, the bad sons to a bramble, that there's one son who's a good son and he doesn't want to be king and he's like a fig tree. There's another son who's a bad son. He wants to be king and he's like a bramble. So that's the comparison that's made. There's 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 18, Song of Solomon 2, 13. And this one is actually the closest reference to what Jesus has to say as it uses some of the same language as Jesus referring to buds and leaves. Um, And in the passage, what it'll talk about is, is that a fig tree is representative of the fulfillment of time. It will talk about in in Song of Solomon or Song of Songs 2.13, that the fig tree is representative of the fulfillment of the time for love to bloom. And so it will talk about blooms and all of those kinds of things. And I tend to think that this is the way that it's used here, that Jesus is the way that Jesus was also using it. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4, Hosea 9, verse 10. This one is kind of a reference to Israel, but not really. Joel chapter 1, verse 7 um, is probably the strongest reference to Israel as a fig tree. But the passage goes on to talk about how God's going to destroy the figs of Israel. So it doesn't really seem to be connected to this future fig tree that we're talking about. And the last one is Nahum chapter three, verse 12. Now, what you need to know is that there is absolutely no 
consistent metaphor for a fig tree. But if you look at all seven of those, the most common thread to the picture being presented by a fig or a fig tree is actually success or prosperity. That it will talk about the, the, the bounty of figs from the fig tree. But what you do need to know is that not a single reference to a fig tree in all of the Old Testament is a fig tree a direct reference to Israel. Fig trees by default do not represent Israel. Now, this doesn't mean that when Jesus told this story that it's not possible that Jesus could have meant it to represent Israel. He very well could have. It's possible. However, we're given no real indication in scripture that this is what would be meant by this. And we're giving nothing from the passage that would necessarily indicate this. Ultimately, what happened was people saw these events, brought it to scripture and saw the fig tree and thought Israel, you know, most people didn't see the fig tree as Israel when Israel came in. It was people looking back. Hey, this looks like it could be the fig tree. And so what do we do with this passage? What is the meaning behind what Jesus has to say here? And so what I, again, would say, and this is just my opinion, I can be wrong. Um, I'm open to being wrong. But I would encourage us to see in this passage, not the metaphorical significance of a fig tree. But I believe that Jesus was giving us a picture of understanding the fulfillment of time rather than focus on the fig tree and what does the fig tree mean and what does it represent and what does summer mean and all of these things, I would focus on as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves. The timing or the issue is timing, not a hidden metaphor about timing. That if we look at a tree, you can see from the signs of the tree what time of year we're in. That you can't necessarily tell the date, but if you look at a tree in your front yard or your backyard, you can kind of get a feeling as to whether it's spring, summer, winter, fall. The trees look different. And so if you look at a tree, you can see from the state of that tree what season we're in. And if you see the leaves starting to bud and the first fruits starting to show up, you know summer's on its way. You can tell the time of year by the signs of the tree. Jesus gives us a list of things that are not signs. And that's like trying to tell the time of year by the number of birds on the tree that we look. And that, that's not a sign. You can't tell what time of year it is by how many birds are on the tree or, or by looking at the ground around the tree. These are not the signs. But Jesus says, but if you look at your tree and you see the leaves starting to bloom, that's the sign to look for. Like the abomination of desolation is the sign to look for. The sign to look for is, is the abomination of desolation. And that's like the leaves and the buds on the fig tree. And so when you see the leaves and bug, buds on the fig tree, you know that summer's coming. And when you see the sign that Jesus gave us, we know that the second coming is coming. And th this is why it's, it's important is it, because we need to recognize that Jesus did give us a sign to look for. And nothing else can serve as a time clock. Israel becoming a nation. Israel being under Jewish control. Even the temple being rebuilt. These things all seem likely that they will probably need to be true for much of biblical prophecy and end of times prophecy to be true and fulfilled. 
because it talks about these things. It would be awfully hard for the abomination of desolation to set himself up inside the temple if there's no temple. Is it all metaphorical? Maybe, but we don't really have a reason to believe it to be metaphor. But does it mean that when I see these things, I should start counting down to the end of days? No, because that actually goes against what Jesus says, because he gave us, he gave us the sign to look for. And these were not the signs. The temple could be rebuilt tomorrow. And that would mean something. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is coming back soon. It could be 300 years where the temple stands. We don't, we don't know. Jesus said, the sign to look for is this one sign. Look for that. When that happens, you know, you got about seven years. So we can get excited about all the signs that could be the signs that lead to the signs that might be the signs. But we need to come back to the words of scripture and to understand what the Bible really does tell us that we can know and tell us that we can't know. And that brings us back to our text. Because there's one more section of scripture that I want to talk about from Mark for Mark, uh, bleh, bleh. I've been talking for too long from Mark 13 to give us some insight into our understanding of end times. Because there's one more section here, and this is a really interesting section. And there's lots that we could dig into here that we're not necessarily going to have time to, but we'll we'll highlight it as we go. But verse 32. Verse 32 will say this. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Now, there are people who take that to say, okay, we can't know the day and we can't know the hour, but we can know the month and we can know the year. That, that they take it very literally that when Jesus said that, well, yeah, yes, I cannot tell you that it's going to be May 21st at 7 p.m., but I can tell you it's going to be May, you know, that, that people think they can do that. But let's, let, let's continue. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, now, this is where this verse takes a really interesting turn because this is, this is odd and it's going to be potentially challenging for us to understand. Nor the Son, but only the Father. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And when I say to you, or what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I want to go back to verse 32 just for a moment because this is a very interesting verse, but concerning the day or that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. What does it mean that no one knows the date of all these things will take, take place? Not even Jesus, only the father. Now, obviously this presents some very interesting discussions that we could have had surrounding the Trinity in this verse. 
but we've already been talking for 50 minutes and I forgot to turn the air conditioning on. So it's, it's warm in here and I don't want to drag this out for any longer than we need to, but this is actually one of, if you have a discussion with someone who does not believe Jesus is God or does not believe in the triune nature of God. If you talk to a, a Jehovah's witness, if you talk to a, a Mormon, if you talk to uh, somebody who, who follows Islam, if you talk to, to atheists, this is a verse that people will go to, to try and show you that Jesus was not God, or that there is no Trinity. They will say things like, do you believe God is all-powerful? Well, yes, I do. Do you believe God is all-knowing? Well, yes, I do. So you don't believe there's anything that God doesn't know? No, nope, I believe God knows everything. All right, turn with me to Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Because here we have Jesus not knowing. How could Jesus be fully God and not know something that God the Father knows? Doesn't this prove that they were not the same? That they're not both God? How can God know something and God also not know that same thing? Now, like I say, we've been talking for a while, and I don't want to go really deep onto the theology. If we want to do that, we can do that another time. I'm happy to do that and to unpack all of this. And there's a lot of like amazing things because actually when you unpack this, this, this whole section is one of the strongest claims of divinity that Jesus gives. But how could Jesus be unaware of these things? What I would say to you, in a very short, too short answer to this question, but at least to convey the, the thought behind it, is that in order for Jesus to be fully God, he had to lay aside specific parts of being God in order for him, him to live as fully human. What I would, and as an evidence of something like that, that I would point to. Um, we read in Exodus, when Moses stands face to face with God, that when he comes down off the mountain, his face shines because he's been in the presence of God. Well, if that happened to everybody who talked to Jesus, that would be weird. That if as he walked through his life and as he went through his li life, everybody who talked to him, they, their face shone after they talked to Jesus, that, that would be weird. Jesus had to lay this aside. Philippians chapter two tells us, um, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Simply put, Jesus was fully God apart from the parts of himself that he had to empty himself of so that he could also be fully man. Now, this is a way oversimplification. Um, this, this is like a flake on a giant ball of something. Um, but it's important that we address it and that we understand that, that because Jesus didn't have the knowledge of when he would be returning, it's not evidentiary that he's not God. But this statement is, to me, the biggest evidence that Jesus, when he said, this generation will not pass away, that we talked about earlier, 
This is the biggest evidence for me that Jesus wasn't speaking about a specific generation in a specific time. Because it would be a little inconsistent to say that Jesus doesn't know when it's going to happen, but he knows exactly what generation it will be. Because he doesn't know when it's going to happen. Jesus said he doesn't know when it will be. So how would he know that 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 which would be the gen would be that generation? We see that Jesus knows a lot about what's going to be happening around his second coming, the abomination of desolation, the years of tribulation, the cosmic signs. But then he says, but I don't know when this is going to take place. I just know that once it does, we're seeing the signs of the second coming. So it makes sense that Jesus knows a lot about the stuff he knows about not the stuff that he says he doesn't. And so I think Jesus, when he says this generation, I think this is one of the strongest evidences that when he's talking about, he's talking about a generation in the future that will see these things, but not necessarily the generation he's speaking to or anything like that, because it would be strange for him to not know, but for him to know. But I think the thing that I want us to take away here is the truth of that. That when we get caught up in end times things and looking for clues and signs here and there and everywhere, we sometimes take, take what Jesus says about no one, not even Jesus when he said these things, that no one knows the answer. And we can take that as a challenge. No one knows the day or the hour yet. Or it wasn't that Jesus didn't realize how smart we were going to be. And didn't count on your or my ability to find clues and put things together. When he said that no one knows the day or the hour, I believe he really meant that we don't and we won't. But we do know that his second or that he is coming back. And so what do we do with that information? Well, if we read those verses again, we see exactly what we're to do. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What these verses tell us is that there's going to be a delay. That the second coming of Jesus, that Jesus is telling us, the second coming of Jesus is not going to immediately come after the ascension of Jesus. That there's going to be a delay between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And we can see that in lots of, lots of different places. Jesus will talk about that with the parable of the 10 virgins, that the master leaves and the virgins need to be prepared for when he comes back. The, ter- the parable of the talents, where the master again goes away and leaves his, in, his employees with things to do. We'll even read about in, in this passage, we'll see that Jesus will say there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there's going to be earthquakes and nations rising against nations. Well, all of those things take time. How long does it take to fight a war? A long time, especially back then. That, you know, we, 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 like, you know, as a culture, we've already in some ways kind of lost interest in the whole Ukraine thing. And that's not really that been that long of a war. 
that wars back then could take years and years and years to siege a city. And Jesus said, there's going to be wars. There's going to be this delay. And here we read about a master who leaves on a journey. So the, the master's going to leave. There's going to be time that will pass. But then he's going to come back. And we're living in a time, or we're living in that time between when the master left and when he's going to come back. And while we're waiting for the master's return, we need to be careful for doing the work that the master needs done while he's away. We just, we read that. We read that um, puts his servants in charge, each with his work. That's the lesson of the parable of the talents, that God has given us things to do while he's gone. And we need to do them. That if we just take what he's given us and bury them in the ground, he will call us a wicked servant. That's the parable of the 10 virgins. We need to be ready for when the master comes back not laying around doing what they're not laying around, but doing what we need to be doing. And why is that? Or what is that? What is the thing we're supposed to be doing? It's not trying to crack the code. Um, it's not trying to understand the secrets of revelation. There's this, my, my favorite picture, my, my favorite understanding of, of understanding Jesus's second coming actually comes from Acts chapter one. And I think this sums it up. It's right as the moment that Jesus has ascended into heaven. He, he you know, all, you know he, he gives, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the world. Gives all of it, you wait in Jerusalem until you'll be endued with power on high. And then he ascends up into heaven. And his disciples are left behind, staring up into the sky. And in verse 10, we read this. And behold, while they were gazing into the heaven, as they're all staring up into the sky as he went, they're watching Jesus ascend to heaven. They're all staring up into sky, into the sky. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. We would understand that to be, to be angels, to be, to be heavenly messengers. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? Jesus who left is going to come back. You have work to do. Let's not become a people guilty of just staring up into heaven trying to figure out and understand what Jesus has already said we cannot know. Let's not reward or look to people who are reckless about end times things. There are whole ministries and YouTube channels and things that are dedicated to end times things that handle the whole, the word of God with such recklessness. And I'm not saying that when we see things like Israel becoming a nation or the temple being rebuilt or something that we should just ignore that. Well, Jesus didn't say I should look for that. So I'm not going to look. It's good to look. It's important. These are things that will have to happen, but let's also keep in perspective of what Jesus himself told us that we can know and what he said we cannot know. And he did say, or he did not say that when these things happen, then here we go. He said that about one thing, just the one sign. So instead, let's not get caught up staring into heaven, but instead taking what Jesus had told us we can know and being on the lookout for that. And let's get to work. We read Jesus in Mark chapter 13, 
and the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. That's the work our master has entrusted to us while he's away. That's what our master wants from us while we wait for him to come back. And that's ultimately the, me- the, the message of, to me, all of the end time stuff is that Jesus is coming back. And so we have work to do if we want to be seen as faithful servants of our master. We need to work hard to prepare the house, prepare whatever you want to say for when the master returns. I swear that love will find you in your pain. Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family. And that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. the beat.